Welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. In today's podcast, chaired by Amir Zaidan, Valeria Santini and Eva Heldstrom Lindbergh discuss their experiences of breaking into the field of MDS as women, as well as talking on the current state of research in the MDS space. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us uh, in this new episode of MDS Sessions uh, of VJ Hemong. Um, this episode is actually quite special because uh, it's going to celebrate the Women in Science Month. And um, we have two highly esteemed uh, clinical investigators and scientists in the field of MDS who will share with us their personal story and their contributions in the MDS field and how um, do they see the field going forward. So my name is Amr Zaidan. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine at Yale uh, University and I direct the early hematology therapeutics uh, research. It's really a pleasure uh, to have Dr. Uh, Valeria Santini, who is an Associate Professor at the University of uh, Florence, a highly esteemed researcher in uh, MDS and the Director of the MDS uh, uh, work basically in, in the University of Florence and very uh, respected Italian contributor. And we also very uh, happy to have another highly esteemed researcher, Dr. Eva Hellstrom um, Lindberg, who is a professor of hematology in the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm and uh, who has been the past president of EHA as well as a number of other uh, highly esteemed uh, positions and highly uh, amazing contributions to the field of MDS. So thank you both for joining us and uh, it's really a pleasure to have both of you with us today. So maybe I can uh, start with, um, with, with Valeria. Um, so Valeria, maybe you can share with us like your story in terms of how did you decide to go into medicine science and specifically in MDS? Amer, uh, that's a long story. So I will try to be very uh, short. But it's, uh, it's a strange story. When I started to study medicine, it was because um, I have chosen to be useful to people. My, uh, my real interest was art and art history. But then I thought that's for myself and not for the others. And I thought I had to be um, a, little more, a little bit more useful. So it was a social choice that I made. And then... Um, and then later on, I was very interested because of the uh, wonderful teachers and professor I had. Uh, I was very interested in uh, uh, the pathobiology of diseases. And, uh, and then uh, hematology seemed to be uh, a natural choice because it couples clinical aspects and, of course, what we call now translational aspects. So I worked in the lab mm -hmm. and I worked in the clinics. And for MDS, was there like a particular um, mentor or how, how did you no, choose to go into MDS? No, that was uh, because when I, uh, I spent three years in the Netherlands and I worked with uh, Bob Leuvenberg, mm -hmm. when I came back, I was too young to take the chair of something and to be the expert of something. And I had an experience in AML, so acute myeloid leukemia. That seemed to my uh, director a little bit too much for a young uh, um, doctor. So uh, they assigned to me the MDS. And in, at that stage, many years ago, there was nothing to do. So I was quite unhappy in the beginning. And uh, in the end, and in, uh, in some years, it became a very, very interesting and challenging subject. But the beginning was just <coughs> because. 
Yeah, and it's actually a very common theme when, when, when we talk to people, uh, you know, for me, I always knew I liked, you know, malignant hematology, but, you know, uh, I worked with a great mentor when I was at Hopkins with Steve Gore, and because of him, I actually got more interested in MDS, and it's, it's always uh, interesting to see how people can take this uh, kind of opportunity when it comes and, and run with it. Uh, Dr. Lindbergh, how about you? Well, uh, it's a story that begins uh, some years before yours, Valeria. So I trained, I was um, I had my medical MD degree in 1983, and I thought I was going to be a gastroenterologist, but then a range of serendipities led me to hematology. And um, so I started at hematology and I started to, I liked internal medicine, I liked hematology. And I got a mentor, he was not at all in MDS, but he worked with something called cell differentiation. And that were in the mid eighties when people had learned how to differentiate immature cells in vitro. You, you remember the stories of L-transretinoic acid and, and so forth. So I started to, to work on that in, in the lab. And then uh, my mentor said, well, you can test these cells because they seem to mature very poorly. So we, uh, my first papers were on vitamin D and vitamin A and things like that. Uh, and, and then, I mean, in parallel, at that time, MDS wasn't even a disease. So in parallel to that, MDS sort of was coined. And then we realized that we had patients that had these immature features and lack of of um, restored maturation and so forth. And that actually led to the fact that I started the MDS research in, in Sweden, and then uh, within a few years also led it in, in the Nordic countries. And I actually became, I sort of I coined the, the Nordic MDS group. I was not even a PhD, I mean, already PhD, and I was a junior doctor. I think the reason was that no one believed that this was going to be interesting. All the professors dealt with acute myeloid leukemia and, and you know, high-grade lymphoma and allotransplantation. So this, I, I was actually allowed, though I was extremely young, to paddle on and form my own interest. And, and then that is on the way. So we published studies and clinical studies on uh, low-dose RSC, which was then what we gave. And, this vitamin A, vitamin D interferon, and that led to the um, to the um, use of, of EPO, GSSF, and so forth. So that was my start uh, with a mentor that had nothing to do with myeloid disorders, but he was interested in differentiating cells in vitro and in vivo. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So maybe I guess uh, I will I will take advantage of, of this to kind of go into the second subject. And you know, since we have I think maybe different generations in terms of uh, entry into into the field. And um, so, Dr. Lindberg, basically, um, did you feel like during and you know, European countries have been always I think leaders in kind of giving women uh, you know full equality and um, ability to participate. But probably across the whole world, there have been always, uh, I think, more challenges for women to kind of gain recognition. And I wonder, like, uh, Nordic countries, I assume, are among, you know, the most advanced in, in that regard. Did, did you feel like there were any differences in the opportunities uh, or your ability to kind of do these uh, type of things compared to some of your kind of male That's beliefs? a very good 
question. I think I was lucky because my mentor, he worked with CLL, he had a very open view. And my old mentor, Gösta Gatton, who is, I think is quite famous, but he's now almost 90, he was a truly, he didn't really care if someone was a man and a woman. I can tell you a funny story after, after a while. So I think that they were very good. And then I, I started to work with something that wasn't a threat to anyone because no one believed that MDS really existed. I think that some other men in the environment would have liked to stop me if they had known how, how an important disease this would develop to. But at that time, when they realized that it was too late. And I think that for me, a good leader, whether it's a man or, or a woman, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ask questions how you should do things. Just that you do things. And I can, it's a funny story. You can cut that out if you like. <laughs> but uh, when I got my second, so, so I, I defended my PhD thesis when my youngest child was about one and a half year old. And he was involved in my late, my last paper in the thesis. So I entered his room and I had the baby then in this baby bag, you know, uh, carrying her in. And we had about one hour's discussion about how to work with the cytogenetics in this study. And then I said, uh, Rose, and I said, well, by then. And then I said, and by the way, this is Frida. And I pointed to my baby. And he said, oh my goodness, do you have a child there? <laughs> Which is kind of funny. So, so that, that was my upbringing. I had good people around me. I had a very good husband. We, we, we shared a lot. And um, so I think that I could have been stopped had I been in another subject and perhaps with some other people around me. But it didn't happen. I had a, a very good journey. No one really tried to, to hinder me to do things. Perhaps that was thanks to MDS, I don't know. I suppose you're kind of ten, 10 years later, Valerian. You well, are not so young. I would like to, but I'm not so younger. Um, but I'm really, uh, I, I, I must agree with you. You have to be lucky a little bit. You have to meet <laughs> the right person. And probably MDS saved us in a way that uh, we had a space that man didn't want in that moment because was not so, um, let's say, prestigious as, they, as AML, for instance. I don't know, maybe this is part of it. But what I must say is that um, I, my mentor who just passed away a few days ago, he was also very traditional, but at the same time, he didn't care if the results and the studies were good he didn't really care whether I was a, a girl or a, or, a, or a boy. So he was very happy uh, of uh, seeing me working. And that is the first thing. So he sort of believed in me. And uh, what is very important, and I think it still is, even if it's less uh, determinant now, is to have a good family around. If you have a social pressure coming, first of all, from your family, then you can be in trouble. And uh, you are right that in Europe, we uh, women have uh, much more uh, protection than in, uh, than in the States or in other parts of the world. We have uh, uh, free time when we get a baby, but at the same time, we are kept in our positions. So there is no real competition or fight when you are uh, 
uh, having a baby or you are in the newer maternity leave that is much longer in Europe than in the States. Having said so, I think I also share with Eva the fact that my husband, even if he has a complete different career, he is a very supportive person in my choices. So that's also helpful. You don't have to fight or discuss at home. Uh, you already fight uh, enough uh, the diseases and, uh, and the uh, situation in the hospital. So I think this is helpful. So I had a very good uh, support from my mother. You know that in Italy, families are very tight. My mother, my father, my uncle. So they, they are present and they help you. And this is uh, releasing any possible social pressure you may have that I don't think is present at now in these days, but it used to be. Yeah, this actually takes me to my next question, Valeria, basically uh, your last sentence. So do you think um, there is still more to be done or do you think we are in a world of, uh, or at least in some countries where the opportunity is completely equal at this point for women and men in, in, in science? Maybe you can speak more like about things in, in Italy, I, I guess, and maybe, and then from a broader perspective. No, I, I, I think that there is a lot to be done. You know that a couple of years ago, uh, there was a big discussion because um, there was uh, a paper that was rejected. And one of the reasons of the rejection was that the authors were all women. <laughs> and the reviewers said, you may find some men to add, but it would have never happened the other way around. And that was not 10 years ago. They actually wrote that? Yes, they did. It was a big, really, a, the, there was a big discussion about it. Yeah, and it's a, as a matter of fact, if you check uh, the grants uh, that are assigned to women, the, the amount of, uh, um, really, of budget on money and the number of grants is lower, and, it's, um, and there are less grants that are assigned to women. Now, this is fading away. It's going to be less and less over the years, but it's still true. And it's still true that there are still less uh, women in uh, top position than uh, men at the university. Uh, there are very few rectors, women. So I think we are still uh, a long way to go. And, and it's up to us. I don't know whether Eva shares this vision, but I think it's us. If you are um, assertive, not aggressive, I mean assertive, and you are self-confident, you can do whatever you wish, but you have to, um, to really be confident and, and work and be present and know that you are really valuable. And if you have ideas, bring forward your ideas. This is something that is not yet completely the same uh, between women and men, I think. How about you, Dr. Lindbergh? No, I do agree. I mean, there are a lot of differences that remain. I mean, we know that women become doctors, perhaps even slightly more than men. We, we, I mean, if I look at the Kolinsky Institute, we have as many female as male PhD exams. Uh, the postdoc level is quite similar. They become specialists in hematology. But then you see, still see a break point so that if you look at the higher levels, if you look at the higher grants, the more substantial grants, even in Sweden, who is supposed to be a sort of a, a fairly 
equalized country, we still have a lot of difference. You have more professors, you have more people getting into the power positions. And I think we are working a lot, but we have to do very much more about mentor programs for, for all young people. So we have, I mean, I lead a big, a big research institution of about 100 people involved in hematology. And we have mentor programs for men and women, of course. But I think that you have to mentor women in a, in a slightly different way because you have still more demands from, from the society to, to, to be at home with your children, even if, if men and women divide the first years. But I mean, that, then it sort of ends up more on, on the female side. And I think also that there are differences that we have to meet with mentorship and with to, to really spread confidence and also to to hook down on things that you see that are really wrong. Uh, I mean, men suggest men for if you want to. It's not only research. It could also be leading a committee or doing things that actually may help you to learn the system. And you have to do that as a woman. You have to say yes to doing these things that men very easily say yes to. So I, I think we need mentor program for men and for women. But um, And I wouldn't say in particular for women, but women really need mentorship, they role models and mentorship. And you have to tell them what is possible to do, which is more or less everything. And then you can, you can choose against some things. I mean, I have chosen for some things, uh, as when I was asked to be president of EHA, that was probably one of the most fascinating journeys in my life. But I've later on chosen against things, like saying I don't want to be head of the, I mean, chair of the whole department of medicine, because that would make me spend less time with my research. So, so you have to choose all the time and you have to have support and mentorship in your choice. I think that is important. And on, on that last point of choosing, and you know, and I hear from people, you know, um, I do think there is like probably some systematic bias uh, in in some situations and some countries potentially against women. You know, especially as you were saying, like going into the highest yeah. positions within institutions and organizations, etc. Et some people argue that uh, some of this could be individual uh, choices. Uh, you know, I guess. Uh, naturally or sometimes women could be more focused on family and and so how, how do you find like balancing that like you know I, I imagine like having the right partner as Valeria mentioned and having the right support from the family is extremely important but that goes in the other way too you have to have the right wife in order to be successful no but I mean I think that what you have to learn as a woman is to because at least in Sweden it's so that Everything should be, you know, all reviews, everything. Uh, when you're competent for you, you should estimate something or review something, whatever it is. It should be 50-50, 50 men and 50 women. But since there are still only 25 or 20, 25% female professors, if you don't protect yourself, you actually will do very much more of this common work, review articles, review people's CVs, all these things, that, uh, review grants, for example. And if you don't protect yourself, you will end up doing much more of that in your male colleagues because you have more male colleagues. 
and then you will lose time to merit yourself, to really work on your qualitative research. So for many years now, I, I think that was EHA who taught me that, that. When people asked me to do something, I said, do you want me or do you want my X chromosomes? And if they then become <laughs> silent, I know that they want my X chromosomes. And then I say, no, thank you. They are not for sale today. I do a lot of these things, but you have to make sure, at least in Sweden, you will drown in that kind of work if you don't just say no. Yeah. Valeria, do you have anything to add to this? Yes, I think... Uh... I agree completely with what, uh, and I recognize myself in, in many things that uh, Eva said. Uh, another very important thing is that we have to be model for the younger ones. Because if, you, if they see that you reach some levels and if you can do your research well, if your um, interest is uh, it's kept high during the years, they will say, well, if she has done, I can do it. And having a female models is very, very important. So um, once I was uh, addressed by a young uh, hematologist and she said, you are a myth. Now, I'm not a myth, evidently, but uh, I just uh, had my child and I was there and I was discussing my data, my results. And at the same time, I was making just some jokes about my, uh, my daughter at home. So they they thought that was very relevant and very important for them because they thought, well, we can do it. And, and of course, as, as Eva said, you have to make choices and you have to say no sometimes. Uh, you have to believe in yourself and, and believe in your strength and not just do things because they ask you to do it. And one thing that I still feel women have a little bit too much is they want to have the approval from the others, from the society, from the family, from the colleagues. You don't necessarily always need to be approved. You need to do the right thing and to, in research, to get results and to uh, prompt your career. Those are very good words. I don't know if Eva, do you have any additional advice for, for I know that many um, young uh, you know, fellows and residents watch this uh, segment basically. And do you have any specific advice for those who are interested in advancing their career in MDS and in, in science for women in particular? Well, I would say that the best step in your career, I mean, you start actually your career when you start to do your PhD or equivalent. It's, I mean, it, there's differences between the countries. But in Sweden and in many countries in Europe, you, you have to do a PhD. And I think the important thing is to choose, not your mentor necessarily, I mean, that is important too, but to choose your research environment and to make sure that you have not only one mentor, but many mentors, that you, you come into a, a team that is supportive and where people help out and where you, you know that this... Uh, that, that uh, important and high quality science is performed. I think that is my main advice to people. Choose an environment that is known to be qualitative, but also qualitative by, by human things. I mean, choose against, uh, even if you have an environment that writes papers in nature and you know that people are mean to each other, or you have 
bullying. I don't choose that. Choose an environment that, even if you have to work extremely hard, that is known to produce good, honest science and where people are good to each other. I think yeah. that is my main message. That's a very good advice. Valeria, before we move on to the next subject, do you have anything to add? No, I, I couldn't be more supportive of this last sentence. It's so important. We spend so much time working and uh, building our research. And if you are among aggressive and mean people, that's not really, it's not really the case. And it's not really what you should choose. Well, I really enjoyed this uh, discussion. It's really fascinating, and I, I'm sure many people will uh, benefit from it. In the second segment, I, I want to talk more about your uh, contributions to the MDS field and put it more in context of, of where are we going. Like both of you mentioned that MDS did not get a lot of attention in the past. You know, it used to be that, you know, I don't want to say basket type of uh, a situation where, you know, the diseases that did not have any therapies and um, because mostly older people, not a lot of attention. And now in the last few years, as both of you mentioned, a lot of interest uh, therapeutically after a lot of progress on the biology over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. So uh, Valeria, you had a lot of contributions in, 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 uh, in this field. And maybe you can just summarize to, for us, like you, what, what, do you see um, your work in the big context of where MDS is currently and where are we going in, in the next five to ten years? Well, that's a very difficult question. Uh, first of all, my contribution was mainly clinical in promoting the uh, optimal clinical care and, and management of MDS. Uh, in, uh, and I think that uh, we made really good patients. We are not yet uh, really happy, and uh, as we are not for uh, many hematological neoplasias and disease. But uh, I think the, um, the, uh, design, the, let's say the project we have now is really to get a personalized mm -hmm. medicine. We talk a lot about it, but for our MDS patient, this is really something very complicated. Patients are elderly, they have a very difficult and complex disease with many comorbidities, with um, different biological and clinical features. Therefore, the, uh, the word that are overused of uh, personalized medicine are really difficult to apply to MDS. But this is nevertheless the way I would like to go because the more I go deep into managing MDS patients, the more I understand that we have to adjust every time. So, okay, big trials, big studies, um, new drugs, uh, new combination of drugs, but still you have them to go to the granularity of the single individual patient and apply. It's different. Uh, the, the, the management of MDS patient can also be different because of sex. So, Probably women, uh, elderly women have a complete different uh, response to some agents than, than men. So this has to be implemented in our, in our future studies. And I think uh, interaction with other disease, I think we have so much to do still that uh, I'm very eager to, 
to continue to maintain my line of study. So on, the, on that same front, Valeria, like, you know, we, each time we talk about MDS, we always say, like, you, you cannot cure it except potentially with a bone marrow transplant. And, you know, we have some subset in MD and AML where the patients are cured with just chemotherapy. Do you, um, how do you foresee, like, the future of MDS? Do you think it's, do you think the goal is to cure some patients with MDS or do you think, you know, sometimes I tell my patients, you know, our goal is to convert the disease into hypertension or diabetes where, you know, the patient is living on one drug or another, but living as, you know, as close to normal in terms of both the duration and the quality of life as, as you can be to, to normal. So how do you view like the direction of, of uh, the treatments, Valeria, before I, I get uh, Eva's uh, thoughts on this? This is a $1 million question. How do I see it? Or 1 million euros, that is more. Uh, well, I, I would like to, to see and foresee a cure. But if not, I, I think that uh, chronic, uh, having a chronic disease that doesn't uh, um, in, um, worsen your quality of life, look at chronic myeloid leukemia. The great majority of patients is managed very well and without many side effects. Now we are also trying to stop treatment, but nevertheless, patients were, are kept in a very good uh, condition for many, many years. It's a chronic disease. They don't even sometimes feel that they are sick or they, uh, they need uh, treatment. So... Um, this would be my ideal for, for MDS patients, you know, especially for the very elderly ones. For the young ones, the very young and the younger, I would like to cure. But as a matter of fact, <clears throat> present, I cannot tell you more than I would like to. How about you, Dr. Lindbergh? When I was going into, like, uh, during my fellowship, actually, when I was contemplating, um, you know, different areas to go into, this was in 2010, I considered bone marrow transplant at one point. And, you know, some people advised me that bone marrow transplant is going to disappear, and we have so many good therapies. And and lo and behold, now we are actually transplanting way more people and people like, you know, with, with the alternative donors and also with all the cellular therapies. And, you know, that field is is booming. So do you think that our goal is to make transplant much easier for as many patients with MDS as we can, so we can cure uh, as many of them? Or is our goal really is to try to move away from transplant? So I will talk about something else, but I will start by responding to your question. I do think that the majority, vast majority of MDS patients will not be cured by any pill or drug. The reason for that is that with extremely few exceptions, the, the disease starts in the hemopoietic stem cell. And you can't really kill that. that that's, I mean, it has too many good protection mechanisms. I do think that we, will, we transplant more and more MDS because now we transplant up to, without too much problems, 74, 75 people are otherwise fit. So, I mean, the increase of MDS patients undergoing transplant is, is really quite, quite marked. And I think one of our big challenges is to improve transplant. So half of my projects last year 
have been really to work with individualized, personalized uh, MRD tools to, to detect the relapses early to be able to address them. We have a huge Nordic study, including hundreds of patients, where we now have in, in, in uh, real time, we get the MRDs and we can react to this. So I think that we will be, we, we, I think that we will most likely need to transplant MDS in order to cure. On the other hand, I think we perhaps in the lower risk states can find ways of addressing the clone. I don't think we can remove it, but we can address it. And then uh, I, that would lead me into what I thought first when you, you posed your question. So I, I mean, I started very early with EPO, developed EPO, and then EPO plus GCS treatment. It's not even considered a treatment anymore, but it is. So we made our first EPO study in 1989, and then we continued uh, with the large studies also giving predictive uh, variables that would enable people to choose treatment. But that had then in parallel led me to the biological studies we have done on, on MDS, in particular MDS with ring sideroblasts, where we have learned a lot about the apoptotic mechanisms, where we, when we discovered the SFTB1, we, we started to look at what was misplaced and what were the expression levels. What we do now, I mean, so, so for me, starting with the clinical treatment now ends up in doing extremely detailed um, transcriptome sequencing, single cell sequencing, trying to ask the question, why does an SFTB1 mutated stem cell compete over the wild type stem cell? Because if you take the SFTB1 mutated cells and put them in vitro in any, they grow less colonies, they don't survive in vitro, they just give up when they come out of the body, but inside the body, they manage to take over the stem cell pool. And that takes decades. So we now know by sequencing uh, colonies that actually the, the private mutations tells us that they arose decades back. So that gives you something that people that deals with chip also is, is working with. Could we, by finding mutations, early on in the course of a human being actually develop approaches that would, could we understand why they compete? That is question number one. And two, if you understand it, could you find pharmacological ways of actually keeping the clone back? Like, as you said, I mean, treating the high blood pressure so that it doesn't harm. So these things, I think, are, are to, to go between clinical trials and single cell sequencing is what really fascinates me. And, and I will probably spend the rest of my, my working time on that. The same goes for how could we understand why a P53 mutated stem cell relapses? Why does it relapse? A lot of the clones we can actually address by allografting. P53 is much worse. And could we, by single sequencing, understand why it breaks the, the immune surveillance? And could we, if we can do that, we can find ways, perhaps, of addressing it. So, so for me, the, uh, the most fascinating part of MDS research is to be able to go from the stem cell to the bulk, to clinical trials, bulk sequencing to the stem cells, and 
trying to get the questions back and forth. And this is what my whole, many people in my lab work, also other PIs. Yeah, and to be able to go from the clinic to the lab and back forth, I think is one of the, you know, very uh, satisfying aspects of a lot of, of the researchers. Uh, yeah. Valeria, you also have done a lot of work on, on um, ESE and linalidomide and, uh, and, and, and in terms of also understanding the role of uh, lower risk MDS. Do you foresee, especially for lower risk MDS, mm -hmm. that it could become, uh, as along the lines what you mentioned for CML and uh, potentially CLL-like diseases in which largely we, uh, life would not be significantly limited by the disease. We, you know, it mostly happens in older patients, but we still know that most patients with MDS, even the lower risk, will die from MDS or its complications. So do you think the sequencing of all of those therapies and the new developments will, will take us in, in that direction? What excites you from all these evolving uh, treatments about being able to, to do something along those lines? Again, uh, you are focusing on low-risk MDS. It's a very articulated question you're posing because uh, uh, we have uh, agents that can target single clones, but uh, uh, an MDS has a clonal architecture that uh, <clears throat> changes over time and that can be modulated only partially by single agents. That's why there is the tendency now to, to combine more agents, but we are doing it very empirically. So we need to have more background and, uh, and biological background to what we are doing. We are um, uh, targeting one clone while we use another agent that has a more um, general uh, mechanism of action, and we think that may, in fact, uh, lead to a synergistic action, but we don't know because we really don't know enough. We don't know about the progression of the clones during the natural history of MDS. And I want to touch upon uh, one thing that Eva has said. We are using ESAS as supportive uh, therapy. I don't believe that ESAs are supportive therapy, but we do not know enough about how this ESA, the erythropoietin modulates clones. Are we uh, pushing some of the clones present in a lower risk MDS by stimulating with erythropoietic uh, growth um, uh, agents? Or are we just giving something similar to a transfusion? I do believe that we have to study even that. Are we modulating gene expression in a different way in different sub-population uh, of uh, MDS? This is one ba very basic question, but it's important and it's not answered yet. So if I'm targeting one clone, am I um, giving advantage to, to a second one or not? How much is uh, important and how uh, important are commutations, for instance. So I think that uh, given all these questions that are still open, answering your, uh, your uh, question is really demanding and it's really difficult. So there are many, many doubts about, we, we know a lot, we have a lot of knowledge, we have been uh, uh, really uh, making good progress, but we do not know yet enough. So there are, uh, there are 
agents, new agents that are used and, uh, and just approved, they are giving, um, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, inducing maturation, final maturation, like this father said, just by um, keeping on talking about uh, the low risk MDS. But we do not know whether this is uh, really acting externally to the clones or doing something to the clone the, the MDS clone itself. It could be that it's just a, past the term, an anti-inflammatory drug. Um, I'm just uh, using a, 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 let's say this word, but it, of course it's not uh, um, really um, adequate. Adequate. But um, just to make you understand what I think is that we have so many uh, still uh, uh, pathway to to understand and uh, um, also the biology of the um, MDS stem cell has to be understood. So it is difficult to speak about lower risk by themselves and then higher risk by themselves. We do so to manage them and to give a, a prognostic idea to our patients. But I do not think that we should really dichotomize in this way, in terms of in biology, uh, in terms of biology of MDS. So it's very, very difficult. I think that uh, the techniques just mentioned, so the, uh, the uh, single cell arrays and, uh, and uh, transcriptome will answer many questions, but we will have other uh, uh, arising from uh, the knowledge we, we accumulate. You know, that's, I think that's a very good pivot, actually, into the last segment, the last five minutes. Um, and I completely agree with you that, you know, the division into higher risk and lower risk is, you know, flawed. Uh, it's a, you know, biological spectrum. However, therapeutically, of course, we always approach these patients somewhat differently in terms of goals of care as well as treatments. And I would like to get your thoughts in, in, in the last five minutes or or so about, uh, you know, patients with the high-risk MDS and what I would call, you know, a therapeutic revolution uh, in terms of the options. You know, historically, we had HMAs, and HMAs have been combined with many other agents, but so far, everything has not, uh, any combination has not been shown to be better than HMA alone. And then, lo and behold, in the last three years, we have, uh, I think, which is unprecedented number of phase three trials, basically. We have five agents uh, from very different mechanisms of action between the PCL2 uh, inhibitors, such as Veneto class, the TIM3 or MPG453, Sabatolimab, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor and potentially other mechanisms of action, as well as pivonidostat, which is a proteasomal upstream agent, uh, NID activating enzyme inhibitor, the CD47, the macrophage activating in, um, a drug, and then <laughs> the TP53 refolding agent along the lines of uh, what Eva was talking earlier about how bad TP53 and the drugs that refold this agent. And those are the ones that are in phase three trials. There's a large number of other agents that are even in, in different trials. So with all of these agents, do you think we are finally going to make a a dent in, in high-risk MDS. Uh, you know, studies have shown us that high-punctulating agents, while they are helpful, but, you know, when you, you look at the population level, the outcomes continue to be uh, dismal. Maybe I can start with Valeria and go to Eva to conclude the uh, talk today. 
I will be very, try to be very brief, but the, the, the discussion could uh, last forever here because the data are very challenging and interesting. And I want to come back to what I said in the beginning. I think that we have to select subpopulation of patients based on the biological and uh, characteristics of the disease itself and of the patient. So the combination are welcome uh, if we have uh, a good background and if we do understand, if we do not have a background a priori to understand why the drug works in that, in, in that specific situation. I don't think that is one good for all. We have to choose the uh, right combination mm -hmm. for the individual patient. And one question we still uh, have to answer is why some patients stop responding to hypomethylating agents. You know that I have a long-standing interest in understanding resistance to hypomethylating agents and in finding, if possible, some biomarkers uh, uh, predictive of response. We are really not there yet. We do not understand why some patients respond and some others do not, or some, and that's really an open uh, and, a, and a big problem. Why stop responding? So I think individualizing the treatment and the combinations and try to go from the empirical results to the um, biological reason for, uh, for response, clinical response. Thanks, Dr. Lindberg. So, I mean, as I said, in, in what we today call higher risk MDS, the vast majority, I don't think you can cure the disease, not with all these fancy drugs that you, list, that you listed. But I do think that by, and I do think that allogeneic transplantation is the cure. And I think our aim should be to make that as effective and untoxic as, probable, as possible. And I think that the new drugs, uh, for different mutational combinations will help us to reduce the clone size before an allogeneic transplantation so that the new immune system has a fair chance to outcompete the disease. So I think for the higher risk, and then I mean the, the border we have to, will have, have to be discussed, but I think for higher risk MDS to really put efforts in reducing the clones making the allografting as untoxic as possible and trying to balance GVHD and relapse risk so that we actually can cure. Today, I mean, I think we cure 60, younger patients we cure 60, 70%. So could we deal with the relapse risk? That is, would be fantastic. And then all these new treatments that you mentioned will be part of that. For the lower risk, whatever that is, but for the ones with few mutations and some specific mutations, the lack of other mutations. I think that we have to work on protecting the wild type, the remain residual normal hemopoietic stem and progenitor cells to allow them to produce erythropoiesis that can prevent transfusion and all the other cells. So I think that we have two concepts, both are precision medicine, uh, but we have to realize when, and, and for some patients, they are so old, so you can't aim towards an allografting. Then you can use the lower risk concept also for these patients. But I think we have to know all the mutations. We have to know all the cells. We have to work with precision diagnostics. 
and uh, we have to use all the fantastic techniques. Actually, in the lab, we have fantastic techniques. We have to sharpen our research questions. So this is, I think, is the, the challenge for the future. Yeah, very well said. And I think it's exciting times. Definitely a lot of developments on the biology, on the genetics, and also on the therapeutic fronts. So at the end, I really like to thank you both. This has been a great discussion. And it's a pleasure to have you both today. Thank you so much for being with us in, in this episode of MDS, MDS Sessions and look forward to, to the next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemol to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemol.com for cutting edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all of the latest news in the field of MDS. Be sure to subscribe to VJ Hemont Podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.